Hi there, I'm Ben Rizzuto, and you're listening to Plan Talk from Janice Henderson Investors. You know, many times when I talk to advisors, one of the main questions that they ask me is what other folks are doing where they're having success. And as humans, we're always interested to find and understand trends. And I think we do this to try to replicate the success of others and be knowledgeable about what may be new and different. This probably explains some of our infatuation with many of the social media sites out there. Another topic that comes up a lot or has come up a lot this year is, of course, the markets. The S&P 500 has been down as much as 23%, and we remain in bear market territory. Because of this poor performance, many advisors and plan sponsors have been thinking and probably more accurately worrying about participants' retirement assets, and more broadly, thinking about how the core menu of their retirement plans are holding up through all of this volatility. So in this episode, we're going to discuss those two questions. You know, we offer a service here at Janice Henderson Investors to plan sponsors and advisors through our portfolio construction and strategy team, which analyzes plan menu lineups and models to help those folks better understand the menus that have been created the risks that may exist, and where opportunities may lie to help participants create allocations that will help them reach their retirement goals. In providing the services, we've been able to gather a lot of data from the advisors and plan sponsors we've worked with to get an idea of some of those trends that we're seeing in plan menu design, but also how plan menus might be improved upon to better deal with difficult periods in the market. So to do this today, I'm joined by Damian Como, Senior Portfolio Strategist on the PCS team to discuss some of those items with me. Damian, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. All right. So let's start with an interesting question. How many funds are you finding on average in the plan lineups that you all have analyzed? Yeah, thanks, Ben. And our our team's been around since 2015 initially focused more on the wealth management side. But over the last couple of years, we've had more emphasis on helping retirement clients, looking at lineups. And since we've released our DC diagnostics in the past year, what we're seeing in consultations is roughly 20 funds on average in a plan. So break that down, nine in US equity, two in ex-US equity, you have three, call it, in fixed income, and then a handful of target date funds, right? So we'd argue that fixed income could use additional diversification and could be in that four to five fund range, right? You still have 10 to 11 equity options in your target date series, and that gets you to that 20 fund uh, average. And Ben, I know you're a man of analogies, so I'm going to try to squeeze a couple in here. And I, I took my kids to the ice cream shop yesterday, really hot here in Denver, And it made me think, right? You have an ice cream shop. You just offer up a few flavors. That's too few options, right? My kids get tired of it. They want to leave. I bring them to an ice cream shop and they have 30 plus flavors. 
too many options, analysis, paralysis. They can't make a decision. The line out the door experience isn't great, right? But if you have just the right options, 15, 20 flavors, there's enough diversification to keep them coming back for more ice cream and we're all happy, right? So obviously the number of funds should align with planned goals, investment policy statements, demographics, et cetera. But really you want participants to have the ability to build that you know, that well-diversified portfolio without overwhelming them with too many options, right? Especially if you have what we see as multiple funds across certain categories. So you want the, the generic coverage across U.S. equities, ex-U.S. equities, maybe some diversifying equity, fixed income, and then target date funds for, for those easy options, so to speak. But if you start with this principle that every investment should serve a purpose, right? Stocks for growth and capital appreciation. You have bond funds delivering income and capital preservation. And then you look for a fund to serve each purpose, then you can potentially consider avoiding some of that overlap. Great. That reminds me of three things. First off, I probably need to cut down on my ice cream intake uh, this past summer. But also some of the research we've seen when it comes to both consumers and participants and what is the right amount of options to give them. In the past, it's been if we offer them too many, they become paralyzed by choice. But then more recent research from Morningstar actually showed that planned menus with over 30 options might offer participants the ability to create better allocations. The point is this, there's no one right or wrong answer, but this number of 20 does seem to fit with what we've seen in the industry from the record keepers as far as the average number of funds. It really gets down to the point you made, how plan sponsors are going to fill in those line items. Now, moving on from there, are, are there other main things that you've seen in digging into these lineups? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we look for a multitude of things in our in-depth analysis, right? But really our focus is around gaps, concentrations, manager selection within a lineup. And a few topics or high-level topics we see are, one, the correlations and overlap are a big topic of conversation. So, for example, typically we see a few large-cap equity options within the large blend or growth space, right? And sometimes you get high correlations where I might ask, does it make, make sense for, say, two active managers and a passive index option, right? We see this in the small and mid-cap space as well. And then in terms of international, there's this whole conversation around, okay, do I need a foreign large growth? Do I need a foreign large value versus a foreign large blend manager? And maybe we'll get into this a, a little bit later, but there's limited assets in the foreign space to begin with when you think of participants and how they're allocating and we want participants to keep that diversification. So maybe instead of confusion around, okay, do I pick a growth or value fund, perhaps a blend style is potentially more appropriate to keep them invested, right? And then I would say lack of diversifying equity asset classes, meaning real estate or infrastructure, emerging markets, just things that have lower correlations to traditional US or ex-US equities. And then we saw this phenomenon in, in 2020 and 2021, where you saw a lot of the more high-octane growth-style managers really outperforming 
during COVID and the recovery, whereas now we're seeing a, a shift more into higher quality, right? And so what we've seen is slowly more aggressive, volatile growth funds creeping into plan lineups where we feel that needs a second look and potentially think about quality growth going forward. And then in fixed income, obviously a hot topic uh, with the market environment, the Fed, but overall there's a lack of diversification and, and potential overlap that we see in fixed income. So typically, Ben, we see you know stable value, money markets, a core and a core plus bond fund seems appropriate. But when you dig deeper, you look at correlations, they're often elevated. And so a, a participant might, might not have diversification, but it also, again, can create that confusion for a participant not knowing, okay, should I select a core? Should I select the core plus? Both, right? So in, in our opinion, there's opportunity and a need to diversify more from that traditional core strategies. And then if you have redundancy or overlap, then you have potential to consolidate, and that may open up a spot for a more diversification and fixed income. So those are a few of the high-level things we're seeing as we're consulting with, with clients. Yeah, that conversation around fixed income is one we've had before on the podcast. And uh, I always try to remind plan sponsors that the plan menu needs to be created not only for your young participant who just started working for the company, but also for the participant who is in their 40s, their 50s, and their 60s. So that really speaks to that idea of creating not only a fixed income menu that is diversified, but also a full menu that is diversified. So you mentioned large cap. I'm assuming that is one of the most used asset classes that you're seeing in plan menus. Is that the case? And are there others that you're seeing used used most often? Without a doubt, right? And and we have a decent amount of plans that we look at in our database. And the data tells us far and away, right? Large cap equities are the most popular asset class used, whether it's a large growth or large blend. That's no surprise given Typically for U.S. investors, we all have that home bias, right, where we like we have comfort in investing in U.S. equities. But um, we see that on the wealth management side as well. Then it's followed by your traditional mid-cap exposure, some sort of foreign equity allocation. And then we touched on it just a minute ago in terms of fixed income, really those core, core plus options, which is often a bond index fund. You also have stable value and money markets. And so um, those are typically the, the the traditional asset classes that we see. Great. So large growth, mid cap, some foreign equity, uh, core, core plus in the fixed income, and then stable value, maybe a money market fund are used most. What asset classes are, are used the least or did you see used sparingly? Yeah. I, I, some of the bigger categories that we see more on the wealth management side and less in plans is really areas such as real estate, the multi-sector bond space, global bonds as well. And then, uh, of course, liquid alternatives within the, the wealth management side. So those are, those are really the main categories that we see more so on the wealth man- management side, less so in, on, in plan lineups. 
Did you happen to see any Bitcoin or cryptocurrency? In uh, I haven't menus? quite seen that creep in yet, but l- let's give it some time. <laughs> we'll we'll see if if that comes to fruition. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, you talked about home bias. We are all subject to it. We see it whether you're an investor in the United States or an investor in the UK. I'm assuming that this was part of plan menus. Yeah, Ben. We we don't always get to see plan assets by category. Sometimes we just see the lineup. But I can tell you in all my consultations, all my conversations with clients, it's no surprise that the majority of equity assets sit in that U.S. equity space, right? So we see it on the wealth management side, as you mentioned. Oftentimes, clients are half the weight of international versus a broad-based benchmark. But whether it's in a plan or a model, to me, it's all about the comfort level of the client, if that makes sense. And so really what I mean here is in the U.S., you're seeing the S&P, you're seeing U.S. equities in the news every day. You're comfortable with the gains and losses, in a sense. And your portfolio is tracking that, right? So being global is diversifying that, but many participants are comfortable with that U.S. exposure, and the returns you're seeing, we're seeing every day, right? And who's to blame, right? But the U.S. has a huge home bias, as you mentioned, in equity portfolios. And typically, if you're overweight U.S. equities, a participant might not understand this, but they're more overweight large cap growth and tech. And that's what the U.S. does for you. But if you're allocating to, say, more European countries, for example, then you're going to be overweight say, more value, energy, cyclical, more cyclical exposure. So really, Ben, it's not necessarily a a good or bad thing. It depends on the clients. But obviously, the the portfolio strategist in me says long-term investors can benefit from reducing some of that home bias and investing internationally. Yeah. And that's, uh, you bring up this idea of getting comfortable with something. And that's something that I, I think is important for for plan sponsors out there to pick up on and, and ask themselves, well, how can we get our participants more comfortable with international investing or any other aspect of the plan menu or plan design. And it really comes down to uh, education. So if you're a plan sponsor out there, I would encourage you to lean on your plan advisors and have them come in and do some education around different asset classes that folks may not be as comfortable as they should be. And that will help them hopefully create a more efficient allocation for the long term. Something that is definitely uncomfortable these days is inflation. And I think this is a great segue into this idea of real estate. Real estate has been shown over the years to provide at least a good hedge against inflation. But you noted that it isn't offered that often in retirement plans. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I mean, I think predominantly you know, plan lineups stick to those those nine style boxes, those big buckets in the U.S. and international space and maybe want to save a, a line item by skipping over real estate. So you know, re- less than half the plans that we've looked at have a U.S. or global read exposure. And We've done some optimization studies on the wealth management side with with REITs in a portfolio, and 
without getting into too much detail, an allocation to REITs does increase the risk-adjusted returns over the long term within a portfolio. And it's because, as you mentioned, diversification benefits via lower correlations to traditional equities and bonds. And the biggest point you made is the potential inflationary protection, right? As many underlying cash flows of REITs are linked to the consumer price index or CPI, and that's the measure of inflation over time that we all see and are worrying about in the headlines above 8% still. So to your point, we believe in the diversification benefits of REITs within a lineup, as well as some of the studies we've done on the wealth management side. And that goes back to that idea of what folks are comfortable with, what do they understand? I think a lot of participants out there, at least those participants here in the Denver area where we live, have seen their home values go up over the past several years. So if nothing else, I think people understand real estate. They understand the value that it has, and it may help them diversify their portfolios. They may not understand why inflation occurs or the CPI or things like that. But if they see real estate going up around them and they see a real estate fund in their plan menu, well, it may be a good way to help them diversify. Now, you mentioned earlier that in looking at the overall plan menu, there were only a couple of international funds or ex-US funds. Mm -hmm. Within those, was there a tilt between growth and value and how did that break out? So uh, about 40% of plans just either have a growth option or a value option. In our opinion, we believe it could be best suited to offer up a more blend style manager, right? I talked about it earlier that avoids that growth value dance, so to speak, that could confuse participants and really keep those assets that they have invested internationally, right? I think less is more in the international space. So it's difficult for participants to commit to say, you know, one or two options or, hey, do I need growth now or value now? I think blend is a potential opportunity to take away some of that market timing that they may be inclined to chase a little bit of that performance and go more with a blend style manager. Right. And that's, I I think, a great point, not only in international, but just in general. If we leave allocation decisions up to your normal participant, they're not going to know when to dance between growth and value as as you put it. So that blend is always, I think, an interesting area to explore for plan sponsors because participants don't have to make that decision. The decision is already made for them. And if you find a good manager that can do that inherently for them, it makes it a lot easier. It may also provide you with an extra line item in the plan menu to offer a diversifying asset such as real estate, as you mentioned earlier. So Janice Henderson, of course, is an active manager. Did you see a difference or active versus passive funds used in plan menus? Yeah, I mean, no surprise here. I mean, typically we see an active and then a passive option in some of the larger categories, right? Large blend, large growth. Uh, We see it in the small and mid-cap equity space as well, where there could potentially be opportunity for active management. And I say that because you want to be aware of overlap between small and mid-cap index funds. 
the larger size of these index funds in the small and mid-cap space, especially in the small, typically drift up in market cap and can create overlap between passive small and mid-cap strategies. So that's that's an area where we see it often. We at least bring it up and have the conversation. And then in fixed income, we talked about it as well. But in the intermediate core space, really that bond index fund and short term and then government categories as well. And you know, I can touch on that a little bit more. But in terms of fixed income, we are an active shop, but we do believe in active management, especially within fixed income. So that, I think, provides us with a good overview of a lot of the things that are going on in plan menus. Based on your review of these plan menus, based on the fact that you look at a lot of these things, uh, both at a micro and macro level, uh, are there specific pain points or issues that plan sponsors should be thinking about when it comes to core menus? It kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, I think the biggest thing to me is, are you meeting the requirements of the IPS? Are you conducting ongoing due diligence to ensure the plan is diversified enough yet doesn't have redundancy or overlap that could cause some issues within a plan? And you know, are there gaps in a lineup? And that's where some of our analysis can help. I mean, there seems to be, and you know this, Ben, a, a ton of education around equities and equity strategies. And then oftentimes, you know, they have 10 plus equity strategies. But from our consultations and database analysis, fixed income is a bit underloved and something that can potentially require more education, take a closer look at. And I, I say that because it, to me, it's really important stuff, right? As participants are moving from accumulation to decumulation phase, you know, they're potentially keeping assets in the plan after retirement. Participants are going to have meaningful allocations to fixed income, and it's going to be a critical or crucial component to meeting those, those requirements. And you know, lastly, obviously, we've seen a tremendous amount of volatility this year, right? We've all felt it. Uh, so it's a great case study and opportunity to reassess funds in a plan lineup within this environment. And, and really, to that point, and we do this on the wealth management side. I mean, we're part-time psychologists, right? But help educate investors, try to manage their fears. There's a lot of fear in the markets and, and really understand to this point that this year has been a correction in the equity markets, but nothing is officially broken, at least yet. So it's been something to, to weather and it, it's a process that we have as investors that these bear markets do happen over time. We've experienced them. But I always say it's important to stay invested using the term time in the market, not timing the market. So uh, time horizon is paramount. So I think that all goes uh, with the overall education to participants. Those are some of the pain points I'm seeing. Yeah, th- this idea of you know being a psychologist and trying to understand fears, it, I think, is really important for plan sponsors to try to learn about uh, at this point in the year because, and I've encouraged plan sponsors to, again, lean on their record keepers to see what sort of trading activity has gone on within participants' accounts over the course of the first eight or nine months of this year. Based on that volatility, have folks made naive, poor decisions. Some of the data has shown that folks have become more cautious and that they've moved from equity to fixed income. 
which makes sense. I, I think it's nice to see that they haven't gone straight from equity to cash, but that is a great way for plan sponsors to see what's going on within the minds of participants, not only the accounts of participants, but then educate them as to the long-term focus that they should have and the fact that, unfortunately, this is one of those things that just happens periodically. Now, you mentioned uh, wealth management, and I know you do these for wealth managers a lot as well. And sometimes we see trends or ideas on the wealth management side steadily work their way into retirement plans. So are there any trends that you've seen on the wealth management side that are interesting or that you think may find their way into retirement plans? Yeah, we've covered a little bit of, of it, but I'll break it down into U.S. equities, ex-U.S. equities, and then fixed income. And I, I mentioned it earlier, but this whole notion around quality growth, uh, we're really starting to focus and talk to clients about that more and more. And what does that mean, really? Looking for companies or funds that invest in companies that have strong balance sheets, sustainable business models, competitive advantages to help potentially protect in a downturn, right? And a couple of examples are investing in companies with higher margins to withstand inflation and higher price increases, or having financial strength or what I say, lower amount of debt or leverage to withstand rising rates. So we, like I said, in 2020, 2021, early 2021, we saw a lot of the high flying growth names outperform. And then those have come back down, whereas more quality growth tends to or potentially can hold up better in recessionary time periods. So quality growth is one area that we've talked about on the wealth management side that can I think can apply to the plan lineup as well. And then we addressed home bias and ex-US equities. That's a universal issue. And so same thing with advisors. It's just not narrowing your range within international. Typically, what we see on the wealth management side is 80% of advisors have a tilt towards growth when they go international. And so we're often talking to them about balancing out some of that growth, maybe going more blend style. And then in fixed income, a couple things. One, we do believe in active management in the core fixed income space to potentially help financial professionals. And that goes in line with in our opinion, the passive U.S. aggregate benchmark, which is a broad base, the main uh, benchmark within fixed income, has potential flaws. And a few of those are it's weighted towards companies and agencies that have the most debt outstanding. One, it's not well diversified. It's heavily weighted towards U.S. governments or treasury exposure. And what is that equal? Well, it equals the duration, is it, which is a measure of interest rate sensitivity, of the index has increased while the yield has come down over time. And so this would infer that a passive benchmark, say, is more sensitive to interest rate increases and less attractive in terms of yield than in the past. So that's that's a couple of things in terms of the core. And then two, as I, I mentioned it, I believe a little while ago, is about redundancy on, on the wealth management side as well. So either within the core space combination of active, passive, or we even see several core options, core fixed income options in a wealth management model. And there's potential to consolidate and, and really look at it from a risk-based framework and diversify and really help clients over the long term. And so if there is redundancy in the core space, potential to maybe remove a fund or two that is redundant, that allows then 
wealth advisors to flexibility to move into, say, a multi-sector or fixed income type manager. And we believe in this because they're diversified, flexible, and they're a valuable tool to help investors call it average into higher yielding opportunities, but also remaining nimble to, to say, increase or decrease their risk budget as market volatility evolves. And so I always break it down like this for multi-sectors. So it's, it, it's a useful middle ground for advisors, right? Um, whether they're looking to re-risk core fixed income or de-risk some of their higher octane, say benchmark constraint, like a high yield fund, Ben. So a couple things across US, XUS, and fixed income that we see on the wealth side that I think is starting to creep into plans as well. There's some good ideas there. And three things that I, that I took from that. One is reviewing a plan menu, uh, I think is always a good idea. And as an advisor, it's something you should be doing consistently with plan sponsors. Now, the review aspect doesn't mean that you're going to make changes, but at least you are doing your level best to review the plan menu, bring new ideas to plan sponsors, and consider if those changes are in the best interest of participants. I think that's something that advisors need to be doing on a consistent basis. The other thing that came to mind is you talked about bias. And we as Americans have a home US bias. But one thing that I think advisors need to think about uh, and have a maybe conversation with themselves about is what biases do they bring to the table when they put together a plan menu? And are those biases leading to different types of risks, overlap, higher concentration, whatever it may be? Finally, and this brings me to my next question, you mentioned things like the balance sheet, leverage, duration, yield. A lot of these words that many investment committee members may not be familiar with, but metrics that are important. So when you talk to advisors and you educate them on some of these metrics that are important to educate their plan sponsor clients on, what, what are those metrics and, and how do you talk about it? Scores, right? Scoring criteria, rankings, ratings of funds. That's important. That's an important component in the due diligence process. And it's a great place to start. But to us, we need another additional layer or three of due diligence. It is necessary to make sure the plan, like I said, is aligned with the stated goals and, and objectives. And to your point, it really shows that the participants that you're being thoughtful and diligent in building and maintaining a plan lineup. And you know this can also apply to, to clients looking to build custom models as an alternative to target date funds, with some coming into question about not being diversified. But so we we help with clients on a on a few a few metrics that I think are important that you may not be able to get on your own, and that's looking at correlations, looking at traditional risk-adjusted returns or looking at standard deviation, sharp ratio, but with an added layer of expenses, right? Expense ratios relative to one another. And so really, are, are you getting the best bang for your buck, so to speak, from a return risk and expense standpoint? And then not just looking at, say, standard deviation or volatility, but compare that to the max drawdown or peak to trough 
what is the largest drawdown of a fund? Is it within range or is it beyond expectations relative to a category? It's especially important during volatile time periods. We talked about quality growth versus higher momentum. That's the type of analysis that can pick up on that. We look at style analysis and factor analysis to identify, is there style drift by a particular fund? Make sure, say, for example, a large growth fund is indeed giving the participant that large growth exposure, right? Not a small or mid-growth exposure. So there's so much to unpack, uh, but we believe that we can help and hopefully take some of that heavy lifting off the plate in terms of that due diligence and running in-depth analysis to go that additional layer to Ben, but also digestible enough that it's not going to be overwhelming and we can help with our consultations. So pretty simple analogy, but I'll go with one more here, Ben, just to just to please you. But you know, a plan is like an automobile, a car, right? And then the underlying funds are the components of the car. And so we need to, just like your regular car, you take it in routine maintenance. We need to continuously monitor and assess and service plan lineups over time. And really that's that's where our team can come in and, and help. You know, and a couple of the ideas you brought up reminded me of at least one class action lawsuit that we've seen uh, against a plan sponsor over the past couple of years. And it's one we've talked about on the podcast before. But in this lawsuit, metrics like standard deviation and correlation were specifically mentioned in the complaint. Along with that, the complaint noted that the participants weren't given the ability to diversify their allocations through the funds offered in the plan menu, which speaks to this idea of large drawdowns or possible large drawdowns. And while these may not be ideas that a lot of investment committee members feel comfortable with, I think this lawsuit uh, as well as the volatility we've seen in the market this year, really shows us that they need to, whether they like it or not, get comfortable with them and better understand how they affect participants' allocations. So, Damien, again, thanks for, for being with us today. Everything we've talked about really reminds me that there is no one right answer for how a plan menu should be constructed. And while that's the case, plan sponsors need to understand that they have a continuing duty to monitor the investments that they offer plan participants. They need to ensure that they have been selected with the best interest of those participants in mind. They need to consider if they will allow participants to meet their retirement goals. And part of that responsibility is going through an exercise like this to see where risks might exist and understand how core menu options might behave during certain types of market cycles. And at the very least, if I'm a plan advisor out there, I think doing this sort of diagnostic before an investment committee meeting and at least entering that into the meeting notes and meeting minutes helps plan sponsors meet that ongoing fiduciary responsibility. So if you think this is something you'd be helpful or be interested in for your next investment committee meeting, feel free, of course, to let us know. So, Damien, thanks again for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. It's been great. And with that, again, we will uh, look forward to seeing you all next time on Plan Talk. Remember that Plan Talk is produced 
by Janice Henderson Investors, an asset management firm that hopes to help you connect with your clients through investment and educational resources. As always, please subscribe if you'd like to hear our next episode as soon as it drops. Until then, I'm Ben Rizzuto, and you've been listening to Plan Talk. The opinions and views expressed are as of the date published and are subject to change. They are for information purposes only, and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold, any security, investment strategy, or market sector. No forecasts can be guaranteed. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, are not an indication of trading intent, and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply, that any illustration or example mentioned is now, or was ever held in any portfolio. Janus Henderson Group PLC, through its subsidiaries, may manage investment products with a financial interest in securities mentioned herein, and any comments should not be construed as a reflection on the past or future profitability. There is no guarantee that the information supplied is accurate, complete, or timely, nor are there any warranties with regards to the results obtained from its use. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Diversification neither assures a profit nor eliminates the risk of experiencing investment losses. S&P 500 index reflects U.S. large-cap equity performance and represents broad U.S. equity market performance. Correlation measures the degree to which two variables move in relation to each other. A value of 1.0 implies movement in parallel, negative 1.0 implies movement in opposite directions, and 0 implies no relationship. Volatility measures risk using the dispersion of returns for a given investment. Sharp ratio measures risk-adjusted performance using excess returns versus the risk-free rate and the volatility of those returns. A higher ratio means better return per unit of risk. Performance may be affected by risks that include those associated with foreign and emerging markets, fixed-income securities, high-yield and high-risk securities, undervalued, overlooked and smaller capitalization companies, real estate-related securities including real estate investment trusts, also known as REITs, environmental social and governance, ESG, factors, non-diversification, portfolio turnover, derivatives, short sales, initial public offerings, IPOs, and potential conflicts of interest. Each product has different risks. Please see the prospectus for more information about risks, holdings and other details. Growth and value investing each have their own unique risks and potential for rewards, and may not be suitable for all investors. Growth stocks are subject to increased risk of loss and price volatility and may not realize their perceived growth potential. Value stocks can continue to be undervalued by the market for long periods of time and may not appreciate to the extent expected. Consumer Price Index or CPI is an unmanaged index representing the rate of inflation of the US consumer prices as determined by the US Department of Labor Statistics. Active and passive investments may both lose value when valuations fall and market and economic conditions change. Janice Henderson is a trademark of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. C092245260-093024.